0: I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. Uh, This Christmas was a first for me uh, in some ways. My friend, if you don't know my friend, his name is Hunter. uh, He recently purchased, I say purchased, he did some black market trading uh, for a station wagon. A big old station wagon. I mean, huge. It's bigger than my house. It's nicer on the inside, too. Huge station wagon. Uh, He got that, and he's been driving around town. Some of you don't know Hunter, but you've seen and maybe taken pictures with him. He's been driving around town with a big Christmas tree on the top, right, with the roots and all. Uh, Some of you are immediately knowing what I'm talking about. Uh, I didn't get it. I don't understand why that old RV is so cool. I just didn't get it. Like, what's going on? Why does everybody share this guy on Facebook? What's the joke here? Uh, This year, for the first time, I watched Christmas Vacation the movie. Right, so it was a big year for me. Uh, and I got this really cool alarm clock which doesn't sound cool at all now that I say it. But it is really cool and it'll it does breathing meditations with me as I fall asleep. Come on. The problem is it's very scary so I can't do it. But good Christmas all around. I hope you all had a merry Christmas or a happy Christmas if you're a Harry Potter fan. But just to recap, uh, what we've been walking through the past uh, three weeks together, uh, what we've looked at the past three weeks is most simply one verse. Uh, It has not been a whole passage. It has not been a book of the Bible. We've looked at one verse and came out of it each and every week, and we will continue that this week. It's a verse in Isaiah uh, that speaks of a child, that speaks of a baby who will ultimately rule and reign in the universe. Right? It's the prophet Isaiah telling us of a Messiah that is to come, a Savior who will carry the weight of the government upon his shoulder. He will bring a new rule and a new kingdom and a new light and a new peace that has no end. But more specifically, what we've been walking through are the four titles or the four names given to this baby boy, uh, given to this child who is to come. Uh, And we originally, Zach originally, had a different uh, Christmas series planned. Uh, And through the leading of the Holy Spirit, he just felt the need to change that. Uh, And our hope in this new series uh, is most simply this, uh, that we would be aware of two uh, big things. That we would be able to draw out, number one, the care of Jesus for his people. Uh, And number two, the comfort uh, that he and he alone can bring Uh, We want to do that. We want to care for God's people in this series. And then on the other hand, we want to extend this out as an invitation. We want to extend this out to an invitation. Anyone who may be listening and hurting and suffering uh, in this weary season, as it can often be for us, who's suffering in this hard season, uh, and offer you to come. Come find redemption. Come find hope. Come find peace. Come find light and life. Uh, in Christ, and we're going to finish that out this morning uh, with the final four, uh, with the final, not the final four, with the final name of the four names given to Jesus in this text, and our focus today is going to be on peace, Jesus as the Prince of Peace, so if you would, grab your Bible, and as you're standing up, turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to read this out together. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to read two verses today. Uh, won't talk about verse 7 at all, I just love the way it ends. And man, it's encouraging. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Give you a second to turn there. Uh, I don't know how many of you grew up in youth group culture. Uh, but one, one of the things they do when you go to a youth camp and it's in a big room like this and you don't fill it out. Uh, what they often do is say, all right, everybody get up and come sit right in the front in these first couple of pews. I don't know if you know Cody Skinner. He wanted me to ask y'all to do that. And I told him no, that y'all would be very uncomfortable. So I got your back in that. If you're wondering, we will never do that here, okay? We will never ask you to come sit all right here together. Super spreader. All right. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six and verse seven. Let's read this together. For to us, a child is born. And with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then I love this last line. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you uh, for your promises. God, I thank you that as a New Testament body of believers, we get to see this partially fulfilled. God, we get to see Christ uh, as our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, everlasting Uh, care of a father uh, and our prince of peace, God. And as Advent closes uh, and we shift back into a waiting for Christ's return, God, I pray that we would remember, uh, remember his glory and his beauty and his care. God, I pray for anyone in this room uh, that has not placed their faith in you, in your son, Jesus Christ, uh, that they are not experiencing a wonderful counselor or peace or the care of a father or a mighty God. God, I pray today would be the day of salvation. God, we know you can do it, and your word tells us you delight to do it. So do it in the hearts of someone here today. It's in your beautiful and holy, holy, holy name I pray. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, uh, but I love the Christmas season. I love the holiday season in general. When it hits about uh, Halloween, it's just like full-fledged, From Halloween to Christmas, love it all. I love the cold weather uh, when we have it, which is rare apparently, but I just love the winter season. I love the holidays, Uh, but let's be honest. I I was talking to Donnie earlier and I was telling him this, Christmas is at its peak. Christmas is at its best uh, if you are in one of two places, either you are a kid or you're buying presents for a kid. Right, and I say that to say this. For me, I'm in this awkward stage where Christmas has somewhat lost its shine. You know what I mean? It's like the presents don't make me super happy. I'm not buying for my own kids. So it's just, it's lost its shine for me uh, recently. Christmas is almost like sin uh, in that it promises big, right? Christmas promises big. It promises peace and joy and a perfect movie Christmas. Uh, And then it rarely delivers. It rarely delivers. And one of the things that I've come to have a love-hate relationship with uh, the last few years is, which it's almost a holiday, it feels like, December 26th. December 26th, right? December 25th, Christmas Day, the culmination of all the expectation of Christmas, right? You wake up, you open presents, you have a good breakfast, play with the toys, go out to eat with family, do all those things. Right, and it's great. And then December twenty-sixth comes around, and I don't know about you, but this overwhelming feeling hits me of, wow, what a letdown. What a letdown, right? That did not deliver on all its promises. It's just another regular hot December day, and I don't even know what year it is. I feel like it should be New Year's already. Right, it just didn't deliver. What a letdown. The shine of the stuff which we love has faded, right? And I hate December 26th because it's a bummer, right? Christmas is over. But I love December 26th because it's a bummer, right? Christmas is over. I love it because it teaches me something. I love December 26th for the same reason that I love Advent. It teaches me patience. It teaches me to hope and wait for something better to wait for something that Amazon and Santa Claus can't deliver. There's an author named Caroline uh, Saunders, and she says that the longing that we feel in this season should be like a big neon arrow pointing to something better and something greater. The letdown of December 26 reorients my heart. On the year ahead, it reminds me, and if you're a believer and you believe the Bible, you're going to have to get good at this. It reminds me to live in the tension. To be a Christian is to live in tension. It reminds me to trust that God is good, even when my heart says otherwise, even when the world around me says otherwise. It reminds me uh, that He is coming back, even when I don't believe it. It's a holy discontentment. But I think that the restlessness that I feel at the end of Christmas reminds me most importantly that I can't manufacture peace and contentment, that I can't holiday my way into true inner peacefulness. I think that one of the ways the Lord is faithful to me year after year around this time is in the way that he gently reminds me that my circumstances or my season of life have little to do with whether or not I'm walking in peace. And this morning, that's exactly uh, what we're going to talk about. And to be honest, I'm not going to dive much into uh, the title of Prince of Peace. If you want to do some deep theological digging in that, more power to you. Today, I just want to talk about uh, the overall expansive idea of what it looks like in 2022 for us to be marked by peace as a people, the peace that God himself and God alone can bring. Here's one of my favorite quotes uh, by a guy named A.W. Tozer. He says this. My iPad froze, so he may not say anything. All right, he says this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important reality about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What Tozer is saying is the most important thing about this is what we think that God is like. Not what we say about him, what we preach about him, not what we post about him, but in the deepest depths of our soul. Who do we believe God to be? His character, his attributes. Do we think he cares for us? Do we think he loves us? Do we think he's disappointed in us? The most important thing about you is how you conceive God to be like. Uh, And peace, for me anyways, uh, is one of those things that sounds so simple. right? It sounds so simple and yet it often feels pretty hard to obtain. And the more that I've sought peace in a million other things, in a million other people, in all the newness of stuff, right? and by gosh I've tried with all the stuff I can, the more I'm convinced that Tozer is right, not only are my thoughts about God the most important thing about me, but I believe that a right view and an understanding of who God is is also the very foundation of any peace that I can hope to walk in. I don't need more money or a better circumstance or to be totally void of all hard things. Right, I don't need a life free of suffering. If you've heard Piper's famous sermon, I don't need to retire early and pick up seashells at the coast of Florida. That's not true peace. That's not inner content. I don't need a hallmark-worthy Christmas experience. right? As much, I'm, as much as I may want to move and fall in love with a girl who owns a ski resort, it's not going to happen. <laughs> right? and that's not going to bring me true peace anyway. What I need for peace is to see God rightly. Just like that last song we sing, I need to take a step back and behold, and behold Him. And that's what we're going to talk through today. Two truths, two unbelievably simple and yet very, very hard to grasp uh, and hard to believe truths about who God is. Uh, But two truths that are vital in our pursuit of peace in 2022. And the first one is simply this. God is big. God is Big God is mighty and big and grand and glorious and powerful and other than right. And this seems so simple, and yet I wonder what would change in your life, in your heart, in your mind, and in mine if we actually believed that to be true. Right? How would your prayers change? How would your fears change? Eli, Gwyneth, pay attention, please. How would your prayers change? Your fears change? Your routines? Your hobbies? Your loves? right? Your affections, the things that you spend your money on and your time on. How would those things change if you believe that you serve and are loved by a big God? And the word used to describe uh, this aspect of who God is, is to say that he is transcendent, right? He is transcendent. Transcendence is just a big word to explain God's godness, right? It's what makes him him, and what makes us not him. He is big. Last week, Zach talked through uh, the attributes of God for just a minute. And he talked through the difference between God's communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. His communicable, communicable being the things that we share with him. Right? We can understand and can model these things. We can be merciful, as God is merciful, we can be compassionate, we can be kind, we can care for people, we can love people well, we can do all those things. Those are things that are true about God that can also be in part, at least, true about us. And then you have his incommunicable, his transcendent uh, attributes, right? He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. We are not. He is omnipotent uh, and omnipresent. He is all places at all times and he needs nothing or no one and he is all-powerful. And we are not. He is sovereign, immutable, self-sustaining, self-existent. He is in charge of everyone and everything and every place and needs nothing. Self-sustaining. As much as we may try, that will never be true of us. Most simply, God is transcendent. God is big. And here's some scripture uh, to give us an idea of what that looks like. Psalm 113 says this, Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on high, listen to that language, he is on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. John 8, we get a picture of Jesus' transcendence. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Isaiah 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Listen to this line. This sums it up. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. As we read through these verses, uh, it's, we get a clear picture uh, that God is, as they would say all throughout Scripture. I could have read hundreds of verses that he is on high, on high. Right? And that's not to say that God is physically uh, dwelling necessarily somewhere above us. So what's that to, to say that God is on high means that he ranks above us all, right? Above all things, above all created being, God is on high. It's his rank. It's his power. It's his position in the world and in the cosmos. God is on high because he is in charge, right? God is on high because he is Lord, he is king, and he reigns and he rules, Regardless of how we feel or what the world around us may tell us, God is on high. God's transcendence uh, is meant to communicate not only his might and his power and his glory, but his lordship that he controls. He is not a watchmaker. He does not create by the word of his power. Step back and let whatever happens happen. That's not our God. He is Lord of all things. He controls things. As Donnie prayed uh, that prayer in Hebrews, he controls things by the word of his power. We even get a picture of this uh, in the Ten Commandments. On all of his laws uh, for the people of Israel, he says, I am the Lord your God, therefore, blank. I am the Lord your God, therefore, do what I say. Anytime you start a sentence with I am the Lord your God, it doesn't matter what you say next. Right, All authority in heaven and on earth is his. It doesn't matter what comes next. He is the Lord and he is God. I love this quote from Vernon McGee. He says this, This is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may think that you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. He is on high. He rules and he reigns. And I say all that to say this, uh, It should do your heart good. Uh, to most simply know and believe and trust that God is in charge. That God is in charge. I know in my own life, right, when fear and worry and anxiety and all these things start to grow inside me, what I need, what does my heart the most good, it's for me to take a step back and understand the majesty of God. I need Psalm 8. I need Psalm 8. Uh, to be the banner over my heart. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What brings me peace is to know that I am not God, and praise his name, he is not like me, and he is not like you. You may be great, you may handle your business, but praise God, God is not like you. John Calvin says this, there is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think that God is like ourselves. The more that I try to find peace by myself or in other people or in other places, the more stuff that I acquire that ultimately leaves me emptier than before. Right? Even when I get that new iPhone and I feel like a better person for a few days, right? You just feel better. It fades. and Then they come out with a new XS or something. It fades. The more that these things leave me empty, the more I'm convinced that I just need to see God rightly. What I need is not a new life or new circumstance or greener grass. What I need is to lift my eyes up, take a step back, and behold him. I need to be reminded of his majesty. That's why my personal prayer is a prayer that I often pray, uh, is the prayer that Moses uh, offered to God, which is God, most simply, God, show me your glory. My heart doesn't trust your word. It doesn't trust your goodness, your bigness. I need, to sh- I need you to show me how big you are, how powerful you are, in whatever way that looks like. And I think church buildings, man, church buildings used to do this for us in part. That's one of the things that I think the church is missing out on today. We just don't build churches the way that we used to. And I'm not saying that we can't meet with God unless the building's nice. We can meet with God in a basement, in a dorm room, in an underground church, alone, in your bathroom, in the shower, whatever. We can meet with God in all those places. Praise God through Jesus. But what I'm saying is there's something to be said about the way that church architecture, the way that the churches were built, uh, the way that they shaped and formed our understanding of who God is Right, this one author says this. Uh, the architecture of the church, the spire, the stained glass windows, the cold. And if you want to get a picture of what he's talking about, uh, just go to Cathedral Church of the Advent, downtown Birmingham. They'll let you in, I promise. Give them my name. They don't know me. The architecture of the church, the spire, the stained glass windows, the cold, the acoustics, the hardness of the pews, the raised pulpit, which is normally off to the side, the stone and precious metals. It fills us with a sense of the sublime. Its greatness creates in us a feeling, not of inferiority, but of human scale. A scale that must be remembered in the face of God. New buildings are built primarily for practicality. Churches used to be built theologically. They were teaching us something. When we walked in the building, before the choir sang, before the preacher preached, we were discipled. We were taught something about who God is by the way the building was built around us, by the stained glass, by the stone, by the garden features, by the raised pulpit. Things like this teach us things about who God is. I've never been to Washington, D.C. I'd love to go one day. Uh, I'm not a political person, but I love the show West Wing. Uh, so that gets me all geeked up just to see everything. And I wouldn't know what any of it was. And it, most of the stuff in the show, they probably fake it. But I'd love to see just the Oval Office, I, any of that. I'd love to see it. Uh, Miss Lisa Skinner, who used to be a teacher, uh, said that her, one of her sixth grade field trips, they went to Washington, D.C. When I was in fifth grade, we went to the rock quarry. Like I, I, did we was it a low budget year? I don't, I don't know what, what happened. Maybe they spent all their budget for 10 years on Miss Lisa's trip. I don't know. But I'd love to one day go to Washington, D.C. And one of the things I want to see is this picture up here. This is Washington National Cathedral. Washington National Cathedral. You can get a sense of the size of it from all the people down there. And those TV screens, which are probably giant, look tiny, right? And let me tell you this that I saw in West Wing, so it may or may not be true, but I think it is. You can take the Washington Monument, flip that puppy on its side, and it'll fit down that center aisle. That's how big the Washington National Cathedral is. And I'm assuming that some of you in here, other than Miss Lisa, are probably more well-traveled than me, right? And you've probably stood inside this. You've probably seen it. And I wanted to show you this picture. Show you the beautiful architecture, right? The stained glass. I can't imagine, probably billions of dollars that it costs to build that thing. Nobody stands in the center uh, of that cathedral, looks around at everything, looks up in that big room. Can you get a sense of the bigness of that cathedral? Nobody stands in the center of that and thinks, wow, aren't I awesome. I have a PhD, I got a huge raise, I'm a scratch golfer. Aren't I great? No, you stand in the center of that and you think, wow, I am not the point. I am not the point. The world does not rely on me, it does not revolve around me, nothing depends on me. That means you can die and get buried and we will mourn and we will weep and the world will keep going it doesn't depend on you and it doesn't depend on me. You step in the middle of that cathedral, you look around you think wow, there is someone bigger and mightier and better than me and he rules and he is in charge and I don't know about you but the smaller that I feel and the bigger and the grander that God appears the more peace that I feel because I know it doesn't depend on me I can't even manufacture my next breath, let alone all my hopes and dreams, let alone health. I can run and eat as much kale as possible. Doesn't depend on me. The smaller I feel, the bigger God appears, the more peaceful I am. And yet, again, living in the tension. A God who is big and glorious and majestic and mighty and distant is a God who is not worthy of our worship, a God who would bring no peace and no comfort. We need a big God who is near. Point number two, God is near. God is near. We don't serve a God who is merely transcendent. We serve a God who is also imminent. Eminent means he is near, he is close, he is intimately involved in his creation. He doesn't rule from a distance Right, they say that scale creates distance. Once you get big, right, it's hard to relate with smaller people or smaller things or smaller areas. God is at the same time huge and big and glorious and with you and in you. Right, this is what it means that God is near. Transcendence can sometimes give us a wrong impression of who God is. That like I said, he's a watchmaker. He breathes out the universe. And then he sits in his lazy boy and lets it all happen. But that could not be further from the truth. Let me read this quote from G.K. Chesterton. This is a beautiful quote. Just let it give you kind of a sense of the way that the Lord interacts with his creation, with your life. says this, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. What he's saying is that every sunrise, every raindrop, every breath you take, every cell of oxygen that goes through the veins in your body, from the unending galaxies and universes, the billions of universes, that we will never, never explore, never see, never know they exist, all the way down to the hairs on your head, to the thoughts in your mind, to the daisies in the field. God is intimately involved in all of these things. I think one of the ways we see this most clearly uh, is in the way that God talks about his people in the Old Testament. Right? Everybody likes to harp on the God of the Old Testament. He's cold, he's distant, he's mean. Right? The Bible just tells a completely different story. Listen to the Lord's heart for his people in this passage in Hosea. And if you know anything about Hosea, they are rebellious at this time. But listen to the Lord's heart. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bells and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Listen to the switch. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come again in my wrath. I love this passage because it's basically an open window right into the heart and the affections of our God. And the emotional life of our God. Though he is high and mighty, he still speaks of Israel as his child, as his son. He says, "I led them by the hand. I took them by the arm." God says, "I taught Israel to walk." Listen to the fatherly care in his voice. "Oh Israel, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over?" And then again in Jeremiah chapter 31, we see God calling Israel his darling child, right his dear son. And then he says this, "Man which messes me up, He says, therefore, my heart messes me up in private, not in public. Therefore, my heart yearns for Him. Let me ask you, do you have room in your understanding of who God is for Him to have a heart that yearns for you? For His heart to long For you, Think on that just a minute, church. And all your failures, and all your sins, and all your insecurities, all the things about you that you wish weren't true. Right that night that you would give anything to go back and change and do it differently. All the things in your past that you wish never happened. All the shame and the hurt that you bear, that you carry, for the sins that you've done and the sins that have been committed against you. Can you believe that this great and holy God yearns for you? That his heart longs for you, even you, messy old you. His heart longs for you. Let me ask you this. What would change in your life? How much peace would you walk in if you would just believe that God's love for you is not tied to your loveliness? How much peace would mark your life if you just saw God's heart rightly? Let me read this quote. Uh, from Dane Orland in his book, Gentleman Lowly. Uh, this next year, 2022, you need to read the Bible in a year and you need to read Gentle and Lowly every couple months, okay? Phenomenal book. He says this, The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence of who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. Listen to this. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. So why do I so often like peace? Why do you so often like peace? Maybe it's because Satan's greatest victory in your life is that he has taught you how to think wrongly about God. I know that's certainly true in my life. My most consistent battles, right? My biggest failures of faith are rarely these big dark things, right? Nobody's going to offer me crack cocaine and I'm going to say yes, right? But what I constantly fail at is the way that I think of the heart of God. Recently, I've been trying to fight this uh, with scripture memorization. And right now, I'm trying to memorize just one verse. One verse. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, And I'm going to try to do this from memory. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. uh, He says, The Lord your God is in your midst, uh, a mighty one that will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you, By his love, he will exult over you with loud singing. He will exult over you with loud singing. I want that verse, man, I want that verse to be in my bones. I don't want it to mark me, to mark my mind. When I wake up in the morning, I want to recite that. When I think of God, I want to think of Zephaniah 3, verse 17. Because I can stand on this stage all day. And tell you that God is kind and God is generous and God is unbelievably faithful. And that he sees you, he hears you, he hears your cries, he sees your suffering. And he wants to care for you. And he does care for you. I can say all those things to you and I can believe it for you. But rarely can I believe it for myself. In the deep depths of my heart, often I think of God as cold and distant And perpetually disappointed. Regretful that he saved me. When I think of God, I think of him thinking, wow, I wasted my son's blood on that guy. I think that God sees me as far more of a burden than a delight. So, you know what I need? I need Zephaniah 3, verse 17, to kick the devil in the teeth. Right? To burn, to set fire to the lies in my heart about who God is and how He feels about me and how He cares for His people. Can you believe that the God of the universe sings over you? That He is near to you? That He rejoices over you with gladness? That He will quiet you by His love? God spoke. God spoke and the cosmos were created. Can you imagine the beauty that must pour forth from the mouth of our God when he sings over his people? That's when I need to mark my understanding of who God is. That and a million other verses. If anything should stir up peace in you and me, it should be that that should cultivate peace in your anxious and shameful and longing heart today, that this big and mighty and glorious and majestic God stoops down to care for you as if you were his only child. And if there's ever any reason for us to doubt that, God confounds all reason and all expectation by robing that very same yearning heart, that singing gladness. Right, He robes it in flesh. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. He says, the word put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The prince of peace, the very heart of the father, Jesus Christ, became like his people. And the truth that brings me the most peace in regards of the prince of peace. Uh, Is the peace that was offered to me and it's offered to you, whether you're far or near. And it's summed up in four words Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. That means I never have to wonder how God feels about me. I never have to wonder if I'm seen or loved or cared for. I never have to wonder if I'm in right standing with God. I never have to wonder if I'm holy or if I'm righteous or if I'm forgiven or if I'm adopted or if I'm his. I don't have to fake it. I don't have to wear a mask. I don't have to earn it. My closet's open. He knows all the skeletons. Everything that you in this room will never know about me, he knows. I don't have to hide anything. Why? Because God shows his love for me and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Romans 5:8. Because he redeemed my life from the pit. Psalm 103. Because he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him I might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. Because he himself bore my sins in his body on that tree. That I might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds I have been healed. 1 Peter chapter 2. And finally, praise God. Revelation 21, because he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The gospel in four words. Jesus in my place. Chuck, would you play for us, brother, as we close? What brings me the most peace uh, is knowing each night when I collapse over my bed, take my shoes off, go to sleep, lay my head on my pillow. What brings me the most peace? Regardless of my worries or my shame of a wasted day or all my frustration, regardless of who I have done wrong that day, and the list is long. Regardless of who has done me me wrong that day, who I've sinned against or who has sinned against me. Regardless of what that day held or what the next day will hold. What brings me peace is that because of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, I have been adopted into the family of God. And regardless of what that day held, there's nothing that I can do to unchild myself. Praise his name. There's nothing I can do to unchild myself. We serve a big and a mighty and a majestic and a holy God. And this big and mighty and holy God, the author of all things, who breathes and universes are created, he steps in to your story and to mine to bring us back to himself. You want this next year? You want 2022 to be marked by peace? Believe that God is big enough to do as he pleases in your life and mine for your good and his glory. And believe that God is near enough to walk with you through it all. C.S. Lewis says this, God is both further from us and nearer to us than any other being. What we all need in 2022 is not a different circumstance, greener grass, more money. We need a right view of the strength and the power and the might and the majesty and the kindness and the compassion and the eminence and the nearness and the love of our Lord. If you'll stand with me, let me pray for us. And we'll sing. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that regardless of the lies of the enemy, regardless of how I feel about you, how my emotions have wrongly taught me to think of you, that your word sets me straight. God, that you are a God who delights in your people. You sing, you rejoice. You are a happy God. May we never believe any differently. God, in the midst of our shame, our rebellion, our sins, our running, our hopelessness, you met us in a new way. You did a new thing. God, you sent your own Son in flesh to meet us where we are. God, I pray that his birth and his death on that cross would be the constant banner and reminder over our life that you are not out to get us. God, remind us in this room that peace is found in you and you alone. Help us to see the weakness and the emptiness of all the things that we're currently seeking it in. God, help the hurting. Comfort those who need comfort. God, help us to make much of the name of Jesus in 2022. It's in your holy and beautiful Son's name I pray. Amen.